Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, New York City, London, Toronto, Tokyo and Zurich. Today we're introducing to a very special guest who's with us from LA, Brian Dolan. Welcome. We're excited to have you. We're going to do two parts. We're going to look at our usual podcast, but we're also taking this opportunity to preview our upcoming humanitarian AI virtual summit. If that's okay with you, can we spend about 20 minutes starting on that and for the virtual summit and then we'll continue with the podcast. I, I'd be delighted. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested time for that. in hearing more about the summit as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. So do you want to just start by saying your name and introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Brian Dolan. I'm the CEO of Vernon AI. We're a startup studio based in Los Angeles, California, and we focus on enterprise-grade artificial intelligence solutions. And primarily we work in digital health, blue tech, uh, sometimes in media, but Largely, we try to develop technologies and products and companies that are in alignment with the UN sustainability goals. And our yes. goal really is to connect entrepreneurs with money and help build out advanced analytic products or mathematical products. And in, in my career, I've built over 3,000 different AI products and started four companies. Uh, and this is my latest endeavor to sort of build multiple products in several verticals with talented entrepreneurs I know. Sounds amazing. We'll talk more about that later in the podcast, but for the summit questions I have for you today, what's the message that you'd like to get across to the humanitarian community about uh, taking a cybernetic view of the world and AI and, and what's needed to make AI applications better and more useful? Is that something you can speak about? Yeah, absolutely. So that's great. So frequently I, struggle with how I'm going to introduce myself, and it depends on the audience. Uh, a lot of times when I'm in the VC circles, I say I'm uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, when I'm in more academic circles, I say I'm a mathematician. But my preferred view of myself, <laughs> if you will, is as a cyberneticist. And I bring that up because cybernetics really is the study of systems and how things transfer between systems. And that, of course, is an issue around public health, uh, environmental health, actually gender disparity, uh, gender inequality, wage inequality, all of these things are parts of a larger system that we're all inhabiting right now. And so I like to introduce myself that way because those are the things that are on my mind frequently. And I'm always asking myself as an entrepreneur, as a cyberneticist, how do I look at the world and hopefully increase everybody's standing, hopefully move us towards a future that is better and more equitable and more just for everybody else. Now those are very lofty things to say I know. But I'm also a businessman and I also have to you know, pay my payroll for my team. So the hard part is often connecting your goal of let's make everybody in a better world with a way that can sustain itself in the marketplace. And of course, government grants are not sustainable. Um, and if you think about entrepreneurship or sort of marketplace forces as the, the actual environmental pressure on a company, you can think of companies trying to achieve these goals according to a fitness that is sort of evolutionary. Again, that's at a very high level, but it's a topic that's always on my mind. Things like homelessness. Uh, I live in Los Angeles. Homelessness is a big yeah. deal outside of my office. There's a, about a hundred feet away. There's a um, couple that often camps near here and I can't help but feel sympathy for them and stand there and look at them as I'm leaving and think, what can I do? And I think when we say humanitarian, frequently 
we're talking about these things that are overseas and kind of abstract that are happening to people in Africa or happening to people in uh, the Pacific Islands. And those are very, very valid constraints. But here in Los Angeles, homelessness is a disaster. Here in Los Angeles, we have so much environmental pollution. And we know that environmental pollution actually affects the people's ability to learn. So when you couple the pollution affecting their learning ability and the wage inequality that keeps, um, you know, keeps them from obtaining opportunities, you're talking about developing a permanent underclass simply through the environmental health. And naturally, we're a city of high disparity. So there are people who have better access to health and people who have less access to health. And I couldn't be more involved in that when I'm trying to work with the high-end hospitals, the high-end Beverly Hills hospitals, and the Los Angeles County hospitals, who are doing everything they can with very limited resources. And you stand there, the way we're all feeling about COVID right now, thinking, what can I do? How can I help? And what are those answers? I'm not sure. I'm always looking for inspiration on that. Indeed. And there's lots of research that needs to go into things. I know Mark Benioff has invested a lot in um, trying to research homelessness here in San Francisco mm-hmm. and obviously LA's impacted on a much larger scale. But going back to these summit questions and we can mm-hmm. maybe expand on it because it's, you know, I don't know what the data around it is. And, and if you've worked in that area, that would be really cool to explore with you. But I I watched your um, TEDx talk and it was really interesting that you, you know, brought up um, two things that that would introduce panic. This is back in uh, September 2017. So would you like to use the examples of um, Asimo and and the Frankenfish to to walk us through that story? It's it's super interesting. Yeah, there's... In that particular talk, I had a narrative in which they inhabited, and it's probably not worth it to recreate the entire narrative here. But when we're talking about these aberrational things or things that feel aberrational to us, uh, for instance, Asimov was a robot developed by Honda that I think scared the hell out of people. They felt like there was a new overlord in town. Um, There's a, uh, (laughs) you know, a robotic master that we're going to have to obey, when in fact, it was an interesting piece of machinery. It did some interesting things. It accomplished quite a bit in terms of the ability to balance and maneuver and do the mechanical aspects of robotics. It didn't advance AI very far. I mean, again, what they did was challenging, but it wasn't a huge advance in artificial intelligence. And I think it generates terror in these people because it's so outside of our experience. Can it be used for good? Well, I think, one of the things that people wanted to do is provide things like nursing help. Mm. And that's a very reductionist view of the world in that you think a robot can be a nurse. Well, a robot can bring you a glass of water. A robot can check your symptoms. But as we know, health is an extraordinarily complicated topic. And a robot does not provide consolation. A robot does not have an empathic ear that allows people to um, recover better. We know that empathy, meditation, socialization, all of these things contribute strongly to any patient's recovery. Uh, there's some good studies in cancer on that. And I think that we want, we don't want to overstate what the abilities of a mechanical robot could be, but there's lots of pressures to do so. There's lots of pressures to say that this is going to save the world, because <laughs> you know? you're trying to sell the thing after all. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, now with um, COVID-19, I think I wonder what we've learned. And um, jumping into the question, 
how does a person like you view AI for good and how would you like to interact with humanitarian AI applications in the future? For example, in response to humanitarian emergencies, are you at all involved in, in what's going on in, in the current COVID-19 um, pandemic? Is that something you can talk about or, or anything else really? Um, yeah, I'm not related. directly involved in the, co the fight against COVID at the moment. Uh, even though I'm within the digital health uh, sector, the problems that are facing a lot of healthcare right now are much less analytical and much more operational. And whereas I would be delighted to help, there's not there's more need for people who can deploy sensors and get PPE to various places than there are people who can learn how to um, you know, write programs that learn as we go. So I work with a lot of people who are involved in getting uh, needed supplies from one place to another, but a lot of those supply chains have been well uh, studied so they don't require additional optimization. So I, again, it's a very important study. It's something I would love to be involved in were were the time for me to be involved. I think that as this progresses, we'll see that there are much more issues around data and data strategy mm. that um, will require the you know the use of, of companies like Verdant to come in and sort of identify where the loop where the problems are, where the inefficiencies are, and then hopefully you know positively impact the delivery of stuff. So that's not something we're directly related working on right now. I expect we will be as soon as things calm down a bit and we go to operationalize a lot of our learnings. Yeah. Any other humanitarian emergencies you, you feel are a good sort of focus for you with, with, with what you're doing at Virgin well, AI and yeah. Yeah. So there's, uh, I've definitely been participating in a, a series of roundtable discussions with uh, entrepreneurs in Africa. And one of the things that's been fascinating about this is this, this uh, fellow by the name of Jim Chu has organized this weekly call with African entrepreneurs and investors. And his premise is that if we can get the entrepreneurship level up in, you know, throughout Africa, then it will help the economy and that will benefit everybody. And I believe that to be true, sort of as stated, but not perhaps in details. What's interesting to me is that the call is, bring us a company that will make you know, Senegal better. And we get pitched these companies and frequently what you're finding is that uh, a lot of these entrepreneurs are basically trying to emulate the Silicon Valley uh, model, right? And it, it will generate cash, it'll get funded, it'll move some cash through it, but it doesn't fundamentally impact or positively impact the citizens of Senegal. There's a lots of, there's lots of articles around how Silicon Valley hubris around we're going to create a product or a phone app that's going to save Africa. You know, I find that very frustrating. <laughs> um, especially being well, in the, it's the it's interesting space. you brought up Senegal because they've done a fantastic job with COVID-19 because they're so, they're so um, well-versed, unfortunately, in infectious diseases. They've, mm. they've got testing for a dollar a person and they've also, they're 3D printing their own respirators for $60 um, rather than importing them. So it's 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 maybe we you know can learn from each other um right. and um see what what different places are doing really well you know for th their own local contexts um but that's 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 a different topic altogether but it's 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 interesting that um that the silicon valley model um might what does the view need to be in your opinion then um if if the silicon valley kind of model or roadmap isn't 
necessarily working is it is it because it's uh what would you what would your analysis be of that well i'll give you an example of something we're working on that's not that's domestic that's working in the united states okay. um that we're working on in the united states and again back to the un sustainability goals um you know a wage disparity is important ending poverty is important and there's a class of the, the U.S. population that is really underrepresented and underrepresented in the underrepresentation. And, and that is people who are farmers, who work, mm. um, you know, are trying to grow our food. And not just yeah. the immigrant laborers who are under significant amount of pressure, both political and personal, but the actual farmers who, who are trying to manage plots. There is um, a huge amount of waste in the agricultural industry for things for biomass for instance where you can actually turn the leftover from a corn harvest into energy you can turn uh, bamboo into wood substitute products which are cheaper and better and more effective um, and there's all this effort where we can have more sustainable crops and preserve that as an economy that is going to provide more justice for these people who are, are trying to uh, earn a living off the land. And it's not just like this, you know, sustainability isn't this, this sort of like a pie in the sky idea that we coastal liberals have. It's important because you're trying to hand this land down to your children, right? Yes. You're trying to have an intergenerational transfer. And farmers know that when they, you know, dump chemicals all over their, their plots, they're harming their children's future, right? And they know this. Everybody, not everybody knows this, but a large majority of them know this. Of course, it's been politicized, so it's harder for them to admit. But if we can find ways to make more mm -hmm. sustainable agriculture, we're accomplishing a lot of goals. First of all, we have better sustainable agriculture, which leads mm -hmm. to cleaner groundwater, which leads to better intergenerational transfer of wealth and, um, and stability. Um, you know, we as a civilization exist partially because of our agrarian nature, because we can grow crops. And if we can preserve that in a clean way that is not borrowing from our children, we're, we're advancing the world. And so one of our efforts is to be able to better utilize the entire crop, not just the corn, but also utilize the corn, what they call the corn stover. Um, also utilize marginal farmland that is usually sitting there uh, doing nothing, but you can actually grow things like poplar trees, which are very fast growing trees, very good at carbon sequestration, and those can be turned into um, plywood for cheaper construction materials, where that carbon will be sequestered within a building for 100 years. So there's all sorts of advances you can make that are carbon sequestration goals, which sound like these big lofty goals, but actually have a direct impact on the farmers who are working the land, who are trying to uh, keep their, their father's inheritance together for their children's inheritance. And that's one of the places that I find it very interesting because also- How, Oh, sorry oh, to interrupt. No, no, no keep please. going. I'm just trying to connect the dots from um, what, what you're saying to AI. So how, how do the two kind of, how, how does the tech help? Right, so I mean, when you start to talk through where the AI comes in, it gets mm. a little nerdy. But I'll say, let me give you an example um, and try not to put your audience to sleep. but. So when you're trying to do uh, a bioenergy plant, so say you're trying to develop bio crude or bio petroleum, which are the organic, um, well, you don't wanna say organic, but they're, they're alternatives to just pulling oil from the ground, right? Oil gets pulled, turns into crude, gets turned into petroleum and a couple of other products. When you're doing the same sort of effort from biomass, 
the biomass is, is very irregular. Oil is irregular, but not as irregular as biomass. You might be pulling something from uh, acorn husks. You might be pulling poplar trees. You might be dealing with bamboo. And so when you're inputting those as feedstock into these energy production, uh, energy plants, the blend is really important. And the blend is extremely complicated. And you have to be able to blend correctly with the appropriate or available feedstock in order to produce uh, a biopetroleum with the correct characteristics so that it can be used. So learning in that space of, well, do I mix three, you know, three tons of that with four tons of that? Um, you can do it by thumb, but you could also do it through an optimization using these evolving algorithms. Um, and we're working towards some progress in that. It's one of those things where the effort we know will pay off because optimization works. We've done it a lot in mathematical finance. We've done a lot in mathematical ecology. Um, the mm -hmm. modern sort of stable of AI uh, methods that people like, the deep learning, the neural nets, reinforcement learning, are not as are not as amenable to this kind of a problem. So it's kind of fun to be pulled out of the neural net based stuff that everybody's talking about right now because it does computer vision so well uh, and pulled into a more complicated optimization routine. But that is still where it's learning the parameters. It's learning what should I be putting in? What will I get out when I put it in and come out? Uh, put it into the left half of the machine and pull it out of the right half of the machine. Um, those problems are very interesting. They're very complicated. They're not commonly addressed by people who, you know, are, are calling themselves uh, or who are involved in the sort of venture AI um, world right now. So the use case scenario you're describing, if I've understood correctly, is blue economy agro what would the term yeah. be? So it's, there's a wider variety they call agrotech. Right? Agrotech, allows, right. Yeah. And so that allows you to better use your farmland, better use crops. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly, of course, to me, I was a mathematical ecologist in graduate school. And, mm -hmm. and interesting to me, of course, this is a lot in the, the ocean crops as well. For instance, kelp yes. is a really fascinating crop for lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not the least of which being it's good at carbon sequestration, um, it's good at purifying the water, and it grows so fast that you can, you basically have an endless supply of it as long as you can keep the level of pollutants, you know, keep it away from a golf course and it'll grow like a weed. So it's this great supply. It's, it's also good, it's okay for um, feedstock in, into uh, energy production. So you can use kelp turned into electricity. In order to do that, you have to optimize a lot of your mechanisms. And that's, we're looking at a lot of those optimizations because they're interesting to us. And honestly, because they're hard. Um, we like to try to take on the things that are a little bit harder. You know, computer vision is probably the most accessible AI out there now. And I like it and I've done some of it, but there's, there are things out there that are a lot more complicated than computer vision that I'm very interested in pursuing. So can you think of any futuristic applications or user interfaces that you'd love to see turned into realities? Do you want to expand a bit more on perhaps other applications? Oh, yes. So I'm very interested in virtual reality and extended reality. Yeah. One of the things uh, a, a good friend of mine is at a major research uh, teaching hospital. Uh, I guess I can say it's Cedar sinai He's a good friend of mine and he works in the virtual reality program there. And they are often looking at ways to use virtual reality in digital health. And the way it's been sort of primarily used right now in digital health is to um, do mindfulness, to do meditation, 
to do a little bit of PTSD training. That's like one of the more significant places where they do this mm -hmm. thing called embodiment therapy, where they walk somebody through a traumatizing event and they walk yeah. it slowly because it's in virtual reality. They can sort of up the level and up the level and they can do, do it in a therapeutic way, which I'm delighted by. Yeah. I also feel like there's so much more that we can do with visualization of cancers uh, visualization of other metabolic diseases because when you're there and you're looking at it you have a lot of insight it's still true that the human brain is extremely creative uh, so if if you are and it thinks spatially the human brain thinks spatially so if you can place somebody within the you know the metabolic cycle of a human being who's undergoing a cancer I'm sure that will inspire more thoughts I'm sure that will inspire novel approaches. I mean, look at all the gene folding simulation stuff that helped so much in the last decade. And a lot of that was, was thinking spatially, but letting the computer do it, but also guided by people's intuition. There was this distributed gene folding effort where people were supposed to take these gene, uh, the, this protein, excuse me, uh, protein folding. They were supposed to fold these things on their home computer and then see if it worked. That's because the human mind is infinitely creative, especially when it's dealing with a spatial object. Yeah, that's an interesting point. The human mind being creative. We've um, we've been talking to, we've been doing a series on its intellectual property and you mm -hmm. know just the rights of you know different. How far in the future is AI going to start inventing things, and what's that going to look like? But that that's just a little side thought. Mm -hmm. I think to bring it back to the humanitarian community, um, are there any takeaways you'd like to share uh, specifically uh, around the humanitarian uh, application of what the private sector you know, could, could share on, yeah. from AI developers? What can, what can we learn as a humanitarian community? What can humanitarian AI developers get from, from your um, wisdom? Sure, if they have any. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a predicate there, we'll just assume. So I think that thought I've been having a lot lately is that, you know, we say that art imitates life. And when we're talking about artificial intelligence, it's, it's not hard to see that AI imitates culture. So as we're dealing with humanitarian assistance, it's really many of the problems we're having on the humanitarian front, whether it be homelessness or, you know, pay inequality, or you know, even famine um, in multiple parts of the world, a lot of those are cultural issues. They can be solved through uh, an adjustment in our culture. And there's a lot of technology to handle many, many of these problems. You know, that people like to say the future is here, so it's not equally distributed. And I think that one of the things that AI has, where are the places it's been overstated is that it doesn't, do anything besides help people make decisions, right? It doesn't, what we want to be able to do is collect data and make better decisions to affect our culture. And we want to put into the AI that we develop the culture that's important to us. Right now, a lot of these humanitarian aids are limited in the same way as digital health by the fact that we're not collecting enough information, we're not collecting the right information, and we don't have the data systems in place in order to make better decisions. Additionally, Sometimes those good decisions just sit on somebody's desk, right? Sometimes they just sit there and don't go anywhere. We kind of know what to do. I mean, for instance, right now, we know that social distancing works. We know that. It's not, it's not controversial. The notion of herd immunity is 
too early to talk about right now, but it's becoming a, a talking point in some media. Um, we know that uh, another that there are aspects of this disease that are completely unprecedented. We know these things. Those insights that we're gaining um, from the experts who are studying this are often being shelved. They're just being simply ignored for cultural reasons. Mm. So there's a fight on both sides. When you're an AI guy like myself, there's a fight on the side of can we collect the data? Can we get in what we need in order to make decisions? Can we go in there with an educated eye and say, hey, you know what we need to do? We need to take your temperature. And we also need to collect your heart rate. And maybe we need a swab from your cheek. There's that fight that we have to endure, which we're all happily doing. But then when we have it and we say, hey, this is what we've come, we've come to this conclusion. We've run all of our mathematical models. We've gone nuts with it. We have all of our academics uh, in agreement. This is what we need to do. We need to not not have people go to the beach. <laughs> um, and that decision just must, does not get made. So from a humanitarian perspective, there's, a, there's at least two sides of the battle we have to fight. Um, and I feel like the easiest way to get through the second part, the part where people are implementing decisions, is to apply market forces. And hopefully the right market forces. I mean, one of the market forces is around selling your digital health information to Google or Apple or whoever wants to buy it. But if we can apply good market forces on the, the, the latter half of all of this, I think we can solve a lot of problems. Now market is of course not the only thing, we definitely need uh, more than that, but it is one way to kind of keep it feeding itself so it's self-sustainable and we don't have to push, it, push money into it from the government. As I hear myself make these statements, I realize that all of this sounds rather grand and, and impenetrable, but a lot of this stuff happens in the small. All right, it happens in the very small, it happens in our day to day, where we are trying to decide what our moral compass is, and we're mm -hmm. trying to decide what we're paying attention to. And then we're going to make an immediate decision today, based on whether or not we have absorbed what we know. And that happens in a lot of different contexts. It happens when you think about it happening in hospitals and nurses who are under pressure to treat people who have COVID. And they're making a moral decision again and again, whether or not they're gonna use PPE. There have been places where people have been fired for wearing masks. Nurses have been fired for wearing masks. And that's, that's happening in the small, right? So as us as individuals, learning to respect that we need to learn from the real world, internally model it to our own sort of moral compass and then apply those things that's what the scientific revolution has supposed to be bringing us. And I don't think that everybody has adopted that mindset yet. And maybe not everybody will. Um, it, science as a, as a practice has only been around for 100 years. But you can participate in that in the small as opposed to having to do it all in the large. Um, and there's some, when you do it all in the small, there's a lot of interesting math that comes out of that too. <laughs> so any any final thoughts for the virtual summit part what's on your mind right now i think that clearly ai is a very very hot topic in the mm. world and there's so much cool stuff happening right now there's been cool stuff happening since the 1950s when ai was essentially developed to to control rockets right like mm. we had to develop a lot of these things because the rockets were going off course so control systems that norbert wiener and morgenstern came up with and then all the game theory from uh, nash and shapley around financial systems. There's so much cool stuff that's been happening since the 1950s and happening up to even this last couple of years where we have imitation learning, we have deep learning, we have the NEAT algorithm, which is really mm -hmm. interesting, the resurgence of genetic algorithms. All of those things are so cool. If you know how to do that, 
and you, you're comfortable with any one or all of these methods, you should be doing it for the right reasons. Mm. So what can the benefit from taking a cybernetic view of the world be? Let's close with that question for the, the summit and then we can move forward to the podcast. We've got time for a few more questions. Would yeah, that absolutely. be okay? Excellent. Yeah, Thanks. Absolutely. So viewing the world from a cybernetic perspective allows you or encourages you to think in terms of what information is exchanged and what information is used and then how that information is pushed back out. So I wrote a chapter in a book that just came out and my, my title was Informational Pathways from the Human to the Machine and Back Again. It was something like that. But informational pathways as they go back and forth. So when you look at something, you're extracting uh, information from that thing. You're hoping to extract information from that thing. When you look at a cybernetic view of the world and you understand that so much of what you're seeing is controlled by so many other things around you, personal health is environmental health, for instance. It's one of my, mm -hmm. my favorite examples. Absolutely. You're, yeah. yeah. You're, you're as healthy as your environment. It very much is. Oh, yeah. And you see that with infectious diseases. I've seen that with mm -hmm. the movement of refugees, uh, you know, and mapping the, the trail. And yeah, no, absolutely. It's totally true. And then the environment as well. All of it connects. Yeah. So what? Sorry, I, I just. Yeah, quite to, right. yeah share so, that. So as you're looking at the environmental health, you're understanding mm -hmm. that everything's part of a system. Mm -hmm. And even the, the app you propose to get funded or. The, the company you decide to work for is part of a larger system that is, you know, creating forces in the world. So you want to make your choices very carefully that, and you want to make them in alignment with your, again, your own sort of moral uh, compass and your own certitude. We at Verdant are very much uh, driven by our goals and our values. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that we don't do things that aren't occasionally sort of hard to understand. We have a, a couple of marketing optimization things. We do those because the math is very interesting <laughs> and it's very challenging. You know, people come to us and say, we've tried this before and we say, oh, let us give it a try. And so we're driven by that discovery instinct, by that curiosity, knowing that as we go in and we solve these problems that don't seem as interesting, again, marketing is fun. The math is really cool, but we're going to come up with uh, generate new techniques we can bring back into our more core value projects. And I, I think that, if you're sitting there working for some software company as an AI quote data research, data scientist or some, some such, and you don't feel completely in alignment with them, at least make yourself available to side projects. And you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And it's true that things like uh, a lot of this AI is only available to a small fraction of the human population. So that gives you great power. You have this information, you have, you have this knowledge and this ability. And, you should be leveraging it in directions that are in you know, accordance with your belief system. Yes, the, the social moral impact of tech we were talking about earlier. Well, yeah. shall we just move on to the, the podcast? Do you want to take a little break or should we just continue? Well, not, not especially. I mean, again, I'm, I'm here to sort of hopefully answer questions the community may have. Excellent. So we're back with Brian. Let's talk more about you and Verdant AI. First of all, we love your website. Do you want to just tell us about the name and logo? Oh, and then, yeah. And oh. the other things you've been doing. But yeah, I would really, really. Oh, yeah. Really I thank impressive. you for bringing that up. We're very yeah. proud of how the website went. I have to say that that was developed in association with a company called Cluj Interactive, who are good friends of ours, and they did a fantastic job. And the design notes we gave them 
were extensive and specific. They went well beyond expectations. So I'm very delighted by our, probably too delighted by our, our website. <laughs> but the name itself is, it means covered in plants, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also sort of a euphemism for two other things. And one is bursting with life is another way it's often used oh, casually. Wow. I like that. The virgin is That's bursting nice. with life. Wow. And the other one is inexperienced. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> <laughs> that's great so lots of discovery there lovely yeah there's there's cool. a nice a nice sort of a spread of what the name means and it's it's very appropriate to our sort of work uh, our our view of how ai should work we like to try new things we like to mess around uh, my background is in mathematical ecology and mathematical bi biology i got a ms in biomathematics from the ucla medical school and my thesis and stuff there was around stochastic systems and mathematical ecology and sort of dynamic, uh, dynamic systems. How interesting. So wow. it, it was a fascinating time of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this story, cut it out if you want, but I had one of the greatest years of my life while I was in graduate school because my job, my literal job working for a couple of labs was to get up at like four o'clock in the morning, drive to the coast, get in scuba gear, and be 20 feet underwater before the sun came up. Because there's a shift when the light changes, when it hits the kelp, the actual, the, the chemical properties of the kelp change when they hit light. So I'd have to collect before and after. So I had to get there, get down underwater in the dark, collect some kelp, sit there underwater, get some, get some new kelp, and then bring them back to the lab where that was my job for the lab. I would have to collect because I'm a big guy and I can carry a lot of stuff. I'm like, send him. So I would carry that back. I'd deliver all this kelp, fresh, you know, stinking of seawater and kelp and seaweed, which I love. And then sit there all day and drink coffee and do math. Um, <laughs> and that was a year of my life. And it was fantastic, honestly. <laughs> I would love to go back to all that except for the pay. It was not particularly good. Right. Well, this is this is it, isn't it? So you since then, you've been busy yes. doing lots and lots of speaking and consulting and yes. talks. Um, we'd love to hear about some of the talks you've given and people you've advised and what sorts of insights you know, these yeah. experiences and interactions brought you. I just did a, a talk last week. I think it was last week. Mm -hmm. Time blurs under uh, quarantine. Right? <laughs> um, <Yes>. Recently, right? <laughs> um, at the AI Showbiz uh, Conference. And it, the topic of the talk was over-the-top media, which was a fun topic. But as I was preparing the talk uh, and I was working with my team on it, we came to this sort of very interesting dichotomy that we've noticed over the years. And that is the sort of cultural divide that happens in data rich organizations. So mm. over the top media, a little bit of context, over the top media is media that is direct is delivered directly from the producer to the consumer mm -hmm. in the way that say Netflix produces a movie and gives it directly to you for subscription, as opposed to pushing it through a theater or over a cable box. And nowadays, you know, sporting sports leagues are, um, well, not nowadays, but the NBA just started offering league pass where you could log on to their website and watch a game specifically. Yeah. So over the top media has turned into this culturally, I mean, excuse me, it's turned into this data rich environment very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So while doing that, I've seen this happen to several other uh, industries and this cultural divide starts to, starts to manifest itself. On the one side, you have these engineers who are recently data scientists who are very interested in collecting tons and tons of data and leveraging these 
modern techniques like the neural net based stuff, the deep learning based stuff, all very interesting stuff. But they're interested in leveraging those techniques in order to find insights. And they have the slogan they like to use that I've been guilty of myself, which, you know, data or it didn't happen. So if I don't have a record of it in my database, it didn't happen. On the other side, you know, on the other side of the equation is, is the analysts who have been in this media for years and they need to figure out, hey, what are people going to like in six months so we can start producing it now? Right? They're being asked the equivalent of, will there be an earthquake tomorrow? And they have very little to go on. They have their instinct, they have some historicals. Mm. Um, so they resort to doing things in Excel, to doing simple linear regressions, to doing some clustering and, and some descriptive statistics that they don't feel super good about, but it's the best that they can do. Um, and when they go to engineering, they're like, hey, we want to do this. Engineering says, well, we don't have historicals on that. It can't be done. So you have the data or it didn't happen crowd and the analysts are much more of a, the worst decision is no decision crowd. Um, and this yeah. is in the entertainment industry. My goodness. I mean, yeah. wow, it's the creativity. It reminds me of what you, you mentioned in your TED talk about Wonder Woman and, you know, the, <laughs> the predictions there were completely mi missed and, and yeah. taking this for its success and, you know, the zeitgeist around female empowerment. So I hope, yeah, well, are, are these decisions really being made by, by data and, and these people? Is this how is this how things are decisions are being made? Yeah, it, it absolutely is being made partially by gut, and there's a lot of resistance to data. And there's mm. good there's good reason for that. There's no way to really mechanically statistically predict things like Wonder Woman. Well, right? everyone's always forecast. It's part right. of publishing, obviously. Yeah, there's got to be a you know bottom line and all of that. But how do you think this is more powerful now? What what do you think is happening with OTT and what you were saying about the culture. Yeah, I think that OTT is one example and it's happening in healthcare as well, but OTT was a particular environment that I was asked to speak on. So mm -hmm. what I feel, what I've seen and my, my, my feeling about all this is that there's a, a neglected set of models out there that come from things like game theory and mathematical mm -hmm. finance and control theory. Uh, and these are things that have been developed since the 50s, you know, Bell Labs. I often cite Norbert Wiener. I think I did in my TED Talk. He's my, one of my favorites ever. But these are techniques that are, that are fine under smaller amounts of data, but can be informed by data. So game theory is a great example of, you know, two people interacting, trying to, uh, you have an audience that wants a certain thing and a, um, a producer who has to produce something in advance of that. So these mathematical techniques actually work very, very well in traditional settings. They're just complicated, right? Mm -hmm. They're just hard for people to get to. And so we have a whole bunch of these deep learning techniques on the engineering side that are also complicated, but people are focusing on them because they can get results now. And then you have these analysts who have questions that are much more uh, amenable to things like economic, econometric analysis or mm -hmm. time series prediction, but they don't have the sophistication in order to leverage these techniques. So I see this gap in the middle where okay. you can have these frameworks we're like, you can use data, but you can also use instinct. And those things should be married and have been married in the past in other, in other verticals. But it's sort of like a, this polarizing culture now. I don't mean politically, but it's a polarizing culture of like the data people versus the modeling people, forgetting that, you know, 30 years ago, we did both all the time. And we should be able to do it now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, everything, I wonder, what can we learn from that? What would you advise these, these people to do differently, not to be polarized? What, 
Mm -hmm. Well, my answer is very unpopular, and that is just learn math. Um, you know, or I have a good friend that knows math uh, because, you know, the reason your MBA can't use the Black-Scholes equation himself is because he didn't, you know, take six years of graduate school, right, in mathematics. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Not everybody should. And the reason your, um, your engineering department can't use these things is the same. They, they don't have that bridge, that mathematical bridge that says like, hey, I can actually use game theory or differential equations. I can use time series analysis to, to solve these problems, but I don't have access to that because I'm, con I'm concentrated on my niche. My niche is I'm a computer scientist and I run databases. My niche is I'm a market analyst and I do regressions. Oh, okay. Um, but there's a whole a whole slew of those things. I think just open yourself up to to the fact that there's a lot of interesting math out there that can be done. Oh, that's Lots interesting. Lots of interesting statistics. Yeah. So it's just not being implemented. And, so and crossing really over from each you know niche and is this something? Hmm, how how does that happen? With so it's it's not so hard when it used to happen in academia, right? Mm -hmm. So for instance. Back in the beginning of artificial intelligence, the, we, you know, the military was designing rockets. The rockets would go out of control, and they couldn't figure out why. And so they took it to get to people who said, you know, because you have this positive feedback loop, the rockets begin to vibrate. The vibration gets worse, 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 worse. So they invented this whole thing called control theory. And control theory handles the dampening of rockets as they oscillate and figures out how to keep it on on track. Um, those were academics and they brought it back to the engineering department. So you have the, an you have sort of the analysts who are like, hey, we're the military guys who want to fire a bunch of rockets. Uh, you have a bunch of engineers who need to build a rocket to shoot up. And yeah. it took a more abstract analytical mindset in the middle to think, okay, we have to invent a mathematics that will handle this problem. So we bridged that gap back then. It can be done again. All those techniques still live today. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still being traded on Wall Street today using Black-Scholes-Merton which is a fairly sophisticated uh, system of a fairly sophisticated framework. So learn math or get to know people who know math. <laughs> yes, very important. So you've shared with us a lot of things that you find interesting. Um, and a lot of people are a bit bored at the moment. Um, there's a lot of hype around AI. Is there anything that makes you roll your eyes or shrug? <laughs> uh, yeah. So as a, I run a studio, so I see business pitches all the time. You know, I see several a week for people purporting to be AI companies. And I, several months ago, was pitched by a company that took 50 minutes and did a big demonstration, and they had the words AI in their very title. And at the end of the presentation, I said to them, okay, I looked at your presentation. It's very slick, very nice. Your canned jokes are great. What in here actually requires artificial intelligence? Like, what is it you're doing that actually requires artificial intelligence? And they said, well, I said, well, because nothing I see requires actual artificial intelligence. Said, yeah, we're going to do it later. So there's this notion of AI winter uh, that those guys are driving us back into because people are overhyping. They know that, especially in 2018 and it's like 2015 to 18, if you put the word AI on your slide, you got a million dollars, right? And I'm guilty of that, right? <laughs> I feel like I actually know the stuff. I've been doing it for 25 years. So I false AI, yeah, false AI. Yes. <laughs> God, there's so oh, much of it and yeah. loosely defining what it should be, like stuff that you wouldn't, you know, people wouldn't call AI until you need so to put it on a slide. So it's overstretched. So where are you finding it's stretching that, that you just think, oh my gosh, you know what? Well, 
Yeah, well, basically in every app that gets pitched to me, there's an exaggeration of what the AI is doing or should be doing. Mm. You know, it's, it's this, and, mm. and, you know, there's a poor understanding of okay. what artificial intelligence can actually accomplish at this point. The, um, the big wins are in computer vision right now. Uh, the yes. stuff that you're seeing with the self-driving cars, they're able to see things and identify objects, and that's cool. And that is using deep learning. But that is you know, a very niche thing to do, regardless of some of the claims, it's a very niche thing to do to take a bunch of inbound photons, turn them into pixels, and then learn from those pixels. That's very different than learning the tone in somebody's voice and understanding what the tone in a voice is. And a, a neurobiologist friend of mine the other day pointed out that with self-driving cars, we're using billions of rows of data to train a car to do something a bee can do with its tiny little brain, right? Mm. It's like, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> Clearly we're doing something wrong. A bee doesn't have billions of rows of data in its head, right? It's a very primitive object, yet somehow it's figured it out. And so there's lots of hype around trying to do things that look like computer vision in other domains, but it's specific to that kind of a problem. Uh, and you can use it in multiple places, but I don't like when people sort of generally assume that because we can see things now, that we can understand things. There's a lot to see and yeah, it's, it's how you look at things. That's interesting what you said about the bees as well. Um, is there anything, we, we talked a little bit about Verdant AI. Um, mm -hmm. I noticed you, you know, part of that is Coburn and biomass production. And mm -hmm. we, we talked earlier about, um, you know, agri-tech and did, did you want to say anything more about Coburn and, and the Verdant AI um, story? Yes, for sure. So the, we have a series of investments we're making um, and products we're developing in the sort of clean tech space. And Coburn, which is probably going to be rebranded, according to the CEO, she, Wendy, she, she wants to brand it to um, a different company. We'll announce that later. But okay. the idea was trying to bring liquidity to the biomass marketplace. Biomass is very valuable as a feedstock for energy. It's very valuable as a wood alternative, so we don't have to uh, you know, grow trees. It actually, lots of these biomass products are good at soil remediation. So you can take salty silicon, silicate soil and turn it into something that's suddenly viable again. Oh, wow. so, and, and it also includes things like manure, right? You, you know, cow manure can be turned into energy, mm -hmm. but there's no liquidity in this, you know, when I follow liquidity with the term manure, it just doesn't go well. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's no liquidity in this market. Uh, it's hard for people to move their biomass from one place to another for a variety of reasons. Additionally, it's very hard for them to know how to use it and intermix it. So the first problem is really a logistics problem uh, that we're working to solve in order to get to a much more complicated problem around optimizing blends and optimizing feedstock blends in order to use it effectively. When we do that, we can take all of this stuff that we're already developing in agriculture and use it to produce energy and use it to you know, fuel farms. And again, an important thing is when you're, using, when you're effectively using the biomass in the complete farm, you're developing land that can be a legacy to the next generation. Yeah. Uh, right now these farms are being used up because they're being they're not being used as efficiently as they could um, with modern technologies. And I'm not completely against all chemicals because water is a chemical, obviously, but 
I think that we can be better about it and we can do things that are preserving and rotate crops that allow us to rejuvenate the soil yes. uh, in order to create more energy. So our, our food supply can be part of our energy supply. Our food supply can be part of our lumber supply. Absolutely. And then when it meets the water, I mean, look, look at what's happened yeah. to the Great Barrier Reef, Queensland's mm -hmm. just the sugar cane, oh, everything's just ended up the chemicals. Yes have of course a lot of it's climate change and global warming but a lot of it is also um yeah no that was when i was at ucla we were dealing with kelp reef right off the yeah. california the los angeles coast mm -hmm. and the the golf uh golf course runoff was awful and it's not just this abstract thing like isn't it nice to have kelp it's like no it's very much you know the the ocean of the lungs of the planet um we know that we can sequester carbon within the oceans when we pollute the kelp forest, we're polluting ourselves. And not in some, I, I keep, I know I say that and I sound like a hippie. I'm, I'm not much of a hippie, although kind of maybe. It's not this hippy dippy idea of, of living in balance with nature because there's no mm. such thing as balance in nature. You know, ask a gazelle if it's in balance with a lion. <laughs> and so <laughs> there's no, such, no real thing, but it is definitely detrimental to us in a physical, material, um, measurable way when we pollute our coasts. And I think that perspective is important to maintain so that we can get past this sort of, oh, you know, you're living with a pie in the sky fantasy of how the world should work. Like, I, I do, but I also live with this very material world view of the world. Yeah, and that that makes me think of something uh, Dr. Sylvia L said in, in a, a webinar uh, last week. And she, you know, she, her call to action there was to, you know, her big passion at the moment is hands off deep sea. And I, mm -hmm. I was thinking with one thing that's got the world's attention that's gone wrong in, in this pandemic, um, is there something from your view that feels like it's going right? Oh, well, I mean, very, let me be extremely specific on that one. I live in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. one of the most polluted cities in Northern America right now. And our air quality has improved orders of magnitude over the last couple of weeks. Is that sustainable? Probably not. But it is, it gives you a lot of hope that when you look at the fact that you can reverse a lot of this pollution pretty quickly, mm -hmm. right? You can do something really fast. There's right off of our That's coast, the regeneration ahead. principle, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's beyond sustainability. Yeah, no, that's, that's really yeah. great. And, and that brings us to the future. Like, what do you think the future is going to be rolled into you seem like a pretty cool LA guy. What kind of future <laughs> takeaway would you like to offer? And um, is there anything our listeners can do to help with Verdant? Anything you, you can invite people to get involved with? So I'll answer the first question first. Okay. So in terms of the future, in terms of artificial intelligence, I think mm -hmm. that it's a very fad driven uh, org environment right now. Um, I think that's been true for a long time. Yep. If your listeners haven't, you know, sort of gone back and studied the AI winters, then they should, because they're going to see that this fad around deep learning and neural nets, again, cool stuff. It's going to, it's going to collapse. It's already beginning to, because investors are getting upset. Of course, a lot of that fad driven stuff is being driven by the money coming out of Silicon Valley and, and fueling startups. But it's also the same that I was the director of research at MySpace for a while. And, and Rupert Murdoch put a lot of money into the AI department there. And I was the head of the mathematicians there. So we learned a lot that we're now using in other verticals. So the future of artificial intelligence is I, there's probably going to be another winter. And then what's going to happen is five years from now, the stuff we, we're calling AI 
will no longer be called AI, the same way that people don't call time series analysis AI, even though it's doing the same thing. Genetic algorithms are you know, not considered AI by many people right now. They were back in the early 90s. And speaking of that, so the, the genetic algorithms the field of really intense study uh, starting in the early 70s and going through the early 90s, uh, sort of culminating in complexity theory and chaos theory. The GA was uh, underneath a lot of that. And one of the things I think is going to be fascinating in the next couple of years is that the rise of the return, I should say, of high performance computing. So high performance computing is very different than what we've been doing lately. Everybody wants to do stuff on sort of cheap hardware, but high performance computing is like good hardware <laughs> that works really, really fast. Uh, the kind of stuff that, you know, people, uh, there's a conference coming up next week around it, as a matter of fact. It's still an important field, but it's been sort of turned into this academic field. Mm -hmm. There's lots of efforts now to make it more democratized so that people can get into uh, high performance computing. And the reason, one of the reasons that genetic algorithms has, have been sort of neglected is because they're way more compute intensive than deep learning. And, and they're much more, it's much more connected data. So now when NVIDIA came out with their graphics cards and their GPUs, we were able to do deep learning because it was all matrix-based stuff. With the return of high-performance computing to sort of a more common, well actually, you know, common activity, I think genetic algorithms are gonna experience a resurgence. They're very powerful. They're really an important part of exploring space and finding new methods. And I've seen them being used in a couple new verticals lately. So I'm excited about genetic algorithms. That's one of the things that inspired the name Verdon, by the way, because it was, you know, teeming with life. Wow, there's so much going on here. I'm curious why CIOs should be considering startup studios for development of their AI capabilities and how enterprises can best prepare themselves for leveraging AI to avoid disruption from smaller players. Do you want to answer one or both sure. of these questions. Yeah. Great. Thanks. So a study, I think it was middle of last year, 2019, earlier middle of, 20, of 2019 from Fortune magazine showed that 85% of CIOs know that they need to innovate with AI. They know it, right? They, it, it's, there's no joke. You've got to get to AI and you've got to be able to find new ways into market using artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, the CIO is also burdened with cybersecurity. So the two biggest concerns are actually polar opposite. Can we explore? Can we lock down? Right? <laughs> so those are two big problems. I think when you have a larger organization that's trying to do innovation, there's a, an incentive within a large organization to sort of keep to the norm. Uh, there's a very large AI vendor that everybody knows that is also has a, a reputation of trying to resell you stuff they've already done. They have this product that they want to put on commercials. And when you go in and you say, I have an AI problem, they want to sell you that product. And that is the exact opposite of innovation, right? <laughs> so when you have a major corporation that, that's got to file a 10K and they need to do an innovation, they're getting pressured to reuse uh, and re reduce, reuse, and recycle their current intellectual property. Yeah. I understand that. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about startups, there's none of that pressure they're looking to find the optimal, to solu optimal solution to the problem that they've been presented. And it's a very different, very different objective. It's also a different culture. When you think about the person who takes a job at a 20,000 person plus organization, they're there for security and perseverance and 
uh, because they, they enjoy that environment or they thought they did when they took the job. And there's nothing wrong with that. The people who are entrepreneurs are much more risk taking. Mm -hmm. So when you have entrepreneurs come and face a problem, they're going to do their, it's been shown time and time again, they're going to be much more efficient, uh, much more optimal. And you're going to get a targeted solution rather than a general recycled solution. And, but one of the problems you have with the general startup is that they don't have the machinery around them, um, the sort of architecture around them to allow them to survive the ups and downs of dealing with a large corporation. And, and that's where studios really come in. And there's lots of studios, Verdon included, mm -hmm. that focus on these enterprise problems. So we can sort of balance the world of this slow moving enterprise that's trying to innovate with people who are uh, moving much more swiftly, who have many more ideas, who are thinking problem first rather than technology or legacy first. And the studios provide the smaller player with a little bit of buffer and they provide the enterprise with a bit of reassurance that this isn't going to go completely off the rails. Like my team at Verdant has been working in enterprise for 20 plus years. So we kind of know what the cycle wow. looks like. And then when mm -hmm. I turned to the, uh, uh, when I turned to the entrepreneurs we're dealing with, and like, well, we can get this pushed out tomorrow. It's like, well, no, actually we can't, you know, <laughs> like, let's do this. Let's keep our enthusiasm up and let's keep it going. But the studios allow us to bridge that cultural gap and along also bring some expertise, like some long-term expertise into the mix. So I think that if you're a CIO at a major corporation and you're looking to innovate, you can try to hire, you can try to like, you know, get your data scientists to do things. And some of that works, but you're much more likely to get a solution around what you want if you go to somebody who's a lot more nimble uh, rather than just taking what you already have. Like maybe you hired a bunch of data scientists who only do these methods. Well, now you're confined by what their methods are. With studios and entrepreneurs, you get a look at a lot more um, abstract view of the world and you get a lot more opportunity to pick and choose. That's also interesting. When we're dealing with the larger topic of sort of humanitarian efforts, mm -hmm. um, a lot of these efforts are being carried out by NGOs or governments themselves or other large organizations. Of course, they have different levels of resources available to them, but even the major corporations of the world are going to limit the amount of resources that they can put into any one problem. So let's talk about the NGOs and the governments. If you're yeah. a government you. uh, that's trying to find it, uh, a solution to a humanitarian crisis and you're convinced that it exists within the data, the answer exists within the data, you have you have less flexibility than even a major corporation. You have you can't hire quickly, you can't identify new people quickly, you can't spin up new new divisions very quickly unless you're under some very very strong mandate, which is which may or may not be useful to be under that mandate. So you can't move as quickly. Going to the existing startup community or the existing entrepreneurial community mm -hmm. allows you to see the things that are being, you know, are actually happening in the real world. A lot of times the governments will go to the big corporations, right? They'll say, hey, we have a problem. We're going to go to some major tech player. And those are, those are good partnerships to have. But it's also true today, as it's always been, is that the, the real cutting edge innovation guys, the guys who have, who will both have nothing to lose and everything to lose on finding a solution, those exist outside of these large corporations. So when an NGO can go and find those, they're likely to get much more flexible and inexpensive solutions. And again, targeted solutions. And I, I feel like a studio is a good place to sort of, to, to look for those things because the studios have these broad views of the entrepreneurial landscape. There are studios all throughout North America. Ours in Los Angeles is plugged into over 300 high-level technicians and a couple, other, a couple hundred other entrepreneurs. So if somebody comes to us and says, this is an issue that we're trying to solve, 
we probably know somebody who has uh, wants to take a swipe at it right and probably a view of the world that you haven't seen before mm. because it hasn't been institutionalized through uh, some major tech company yeah that sounds great so there's lots of benefit from studios and, and looking for innovation solutions for our humanitarian community um so brian I'm sure our listeners are, are probably keen and eager to know, you know, what, what would be a way to approach Verdant AI for advice? Um, what would that first exchange look like? What should they prepare? What would be a way to reach out? So I'm going to give you an answer that's going to be surprising, but is actually backed up by experience and research. And that is don't prepare at all. Email us, get in contact. The first conversation, if you're, say, for instance, an NGO that's trying to figure out a better data strategy for distributing health advice, the first conversation is really just tell us about your problem. There's, there's a lot of value in respecting the authority of the domain knowledge of the person who calls. They know a lot about their problem. And when I say to somebody, please think about this or have this prepared, they stop thinking about their problem. They start thinking about what my interpretation of their problem is. And that's not helpful. I mean, they won't get what they want. So really, our first conversation is really about what is the issue that you're trying to solve. And a lot of times, that's not a data problem. It's, you know, it's a cultural problem. And at that point, I say, well, these are my suggestions on what I've seen, how to change culture in the past. I'm sorry, I can't help you. But if it's a data problem, then we, we do a thing called a data sufficiency study where we start talking about what data is collected. And then we come up with the art of the possible with the data that you have. I had one um, company that wanted to do user recommendations, but they weren't even collecting user logins. So we said, okay, let's start with collecting user logins. Um, and then we can go on to recommending for users. So you do a data sufficiency study, and that's usually a couple of weeks to figure out what you have and what you can do with it and what kind of questions the data you're collecting is supporting. And then we try to match that up with the questions you actually have, which are usually different, but often not so different that it can't be bridged. From there, we will prototype and design and say, if we design this solution and we took this data and we extracted and, and, and included your input in this way, it might solve your problem. I think that that is probably the most interesting and most fun part because you're sitting down and actually coming up with something that will help somebody. And from there, after we've got through a prototype and a, a proof of concept, then we can talk about longer term engagements. That's the That's general fantastic. art. I would say people just show up and you know, mm -hmm. it, especially when you get when you get enough of these, you become a therapist. <laughs> we, we, a lot of us are just basically therapists. Like you have a problem, you have an analytic problem. Mm -hmm. Just tell me about it. Let's hear about it. And maybe I could help you, and maybe I can't. Um, why are you here? Yeah. Tell me yeah, your why, problem. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell me what you <laughs> think you great. want me to hear. Yeah, tell yeah, me what yeah. your actual issue is, mm -hmm. and then we'll we'll move forward from there. Lovely. But then our team does a lot of prototyping, data sufficiency studies. We'll do, um, you know, we'll even do the whole data strategy if, if it comes to it. And then in rare occasions, we'll actually build out the entire uh, suite. But we don't, that's not really our sweet spot there. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds super helpful. Thank you for your advice there. Anything right now that you've learned the way, you know, I, for example, you, you look at OTT, Netflix and, and HBO or, or NBC, which is, doing producing things like the voice and it feels like a live streaming kind of scenario but it's not live streaming is is any data there 
are you contributing in any way? What you, what's your role in, in all of that? Is that something that's relevant to, to our conversation now, do you reckon? Or uh, Yeah, I think the probably the most interesting um, sort of OTT play for AI right now, or for high-end analytics in general, is mm-hmm. probably in sports. In more in like reality TV and competition shows, those things are still being produced like on a weekly basis. So it's hard to take real time feedback, but sports pretty cool. The computer vision we were talking about earlier, you know, we've been excelling in computer vision. You can see who's on screen. You can see that, you know, uh, LeBron James is on screen right now and he's on the court. You couple that with a, a more sophisticated version called event detection, where you can tell whether or not he actually scored. You know, if you're watching a basketball game, it's harder to, to see who's, it's easier to see who's on the court than whether or not the ball went through the hoop. So we know some companies that are working hard on the event detection are doing a very good job. So why is that interesting? Well, it becomes real time metrics, right? It becomes a real time feedback of what's actually happening on the court. And you know, when you're listening to the narrators that they're constantly talking about shot percentage and win percentage and like, well, this guy has this many minutes and that many minutes. And a lot of those statistics can be updated in real time and fed back into even more, you know, these meta games like the fantasy sports leagues where people get traded like assets, like well, I'm going to buy LeBron James for my fantasy team. So that is mathematically almost equivalent to a future, right? Trying to figure out what are the things, um, if you're not familiar with mathematical finance future, I'm betting on the future price of an asset. What, is, what, is, what are portfolios going to be in two weeks? So when you're doing that with fantasy sports, you're collecting these players and you're buying them like a future. And in the real stock market, you need to know everything up until this moment. A NASDAQ, for instance, is an algo trading, is really fast trading and they are looking at prices within a millisecond. So with with sports in the OTT um, arena, you can turn that into almost an algo training environment. Is that the best for humanity? I don't know. Sounds like a lot of fun though, because it's a lot of hard math. So I'm very excited about that from the sort of curiosity point of view. Those things, of course, play directly back into things like the Internet of Things and digital health when we're monitoring patients remotely. But like we did at MySpace, we were able to develop a whole bunch of products based on natural language processing that we later took into the world. We could develop those those finance-based products from fantasy sports leagues and bring them back into digital health now that they've been sort of funded by a different industry. Well, that sounds like a super cool and useful segue. And I think this has been epic talking to you, Brian. Thanks so much. Is there anything you'd like to share as a final closing thing? Or I think we've covered so much. You know, when you start talking about the humanitarian view of the world, it it's, becomes very personal for a lot of people. And it also becomes personal for me. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a rough neighborhood, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I had my own story that, that culminated in me coming out of poverty and being able to contribute to some really big national conversations. Um, you know, for instance, I was at MySpace. I contributed to national conversation. I worked at CIA for a while. I contributed. I was at Yahoo for a while. Started a couple, I, a couple of companies, one of which worked in digital health, and we helped give cancer patients treatment. So these are extremely personal stories for me. And one of the things I, I can't emphasize enough is how lucky my team and I have been to mm-hmm. do this fun stuff and to be seriously you know, in, involved in conversations with people who are trying to promote entrepreneurship in Africa in order to bring those people better 
uh, a better quality of life, to be able to talk to farmers in the heartland and help hopefully bring them a better quality of life, not through some West Coast idealism, but through the mechanisms they're actually using now and making them better. And we're just, we feel very fortunate. We had a, we got approached about uh, digital therapeutics for people um, trying to do addiction recovery and, and virtual yeah. reality. Participating in those things is extremely satisfying. It makes you feel like you didn't, uh, you know, waste your time in college. <laughs> so I'm just glad to be here and I'm glad to talk to you guys about humanitarian efforts. And clearly it's something I love to talk about. So I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you about it. And if there's anything else I can say, or if your audience has any other questions, I'm delighted to talk to them as well. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Thank you so much, Brian, for, for sharing your insights. And that brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.